There are few dishes as universally loved as this dish. And for some, the holidays wouldn't be the same without a large casserole almost overflowing with a combination of noodles, milk, and cheese. The warm and gooey pasta dish serves as a savory side, a stunning main, and is widely enjoyed by even the pickiest of young eaters. While it has established itself as an American classic, its surprisingly lengthy history predates the country and is as diverse as the many ways one can cook it. We're exploring the history and origins of macaroni and cheese. Welcome to another serving of Seasons Eatings, the podcast which explores the history and origins of your favorite Christmas foods. This is a bonus episode of the podcast I like to call Seasons Eatings Side Dish. We're focusing on dishes that don't usually get the spotlight during the holidays. Seasons Eatings can be found wherever you download your favorite podcasts and we're also found on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you love the show, then I humbly ask you to share this podcast with someone you think would love to hear more about the history of Christmas and the foods which shape the holiday we love so much. If you want to give me suggestions for future episodes, just email me at seasonseatingspodcast at gmail.com. All the links can be found in the show notes at seasonseatingspodcast.com. It's holiday time, and nothing showcases America's diversity more than how it's celebrated at this time of year, especially the food we eat. One's culture, ethnicity, and geographic location all play a role in what food is consumed during holiday gatherings. One food in particular has a unique place in American culinary traditions, and how and when this food is eaten and how it's prepared often depends on what ethnic background you have. It's one of the country's best-known comfort foods, macaroni and cheese. Undoubtedly, macaroni and cheese is one of the most popular convenience foods in the U.S. Just about everyone loves mac and cheese. It's among America's top 10 comfort foods. Kraft sells upwards of a million boxes a day. Crayola even has a crayon hue called macaroni and cheese. 35% of southeastern households serve mac and cheese as a Thanksgiving dish, 15% more than the rest of the country, an opinion poll found in 2015. In that same year, half of the 1,000 people who responded to a country croc survey said they wanted to add macaroni and cheese to the holiday lineup. Given its easy preparation style, simple ingredients, and amazing taste, Mac and cheese has become a staple in the average family's household, finding its way to the dinner table on typical days and special occasions. Macaroni and cheese debuted in regal cuisine. The earliest recorded recipe, a simple combination of boiled pasta, butter, and Parmesan cheese, appeared in the circa 1390 Form of Curry cookbook, the go-to resource for cooks in royal kitchens across Europe. Over time, preparation methods evolved to include eggs, milk, different cheeses, breadcrumbs, and more, eventually becoming the goopy excess we know and love today. Pasta and cheese casseroles were recorded in the 14th century in the Italian cookbook Libera de Cochina, 
which features a dish of parmesan and pasta. A cheese and pasta casserole known as macarons was recorded in the 14th century medieval English cookbook, The Form of Curry. I've referenced The Form of Curry many times during this podcast, and it's no wonder it's considered one of the earliest written records of cookery in modern times. Their version of macaroni and cheese is made with fresh hand-cut pasta, which was sandwiched between a mixture of melted butter and cheese. The recipe given in Middle English was, Take and make a thin foil of dough, and curve it on pieces and cast them in boiling water, and seethe it well. Take cheese and grate it, and butter cast beneath and above as loisins, and serve forth. Loisins actually became the version of lasagna as we know today. The first modern recipe for macaroni and cheese was included in Elizabeth Raffold's 1770 book, The Experienced English Housekeeper. Raffold's recipe is for a bechamel sauce with cheddar cheese, a Mornay sauce in French cooking, which is mixed with macaroni, sprinkled with parmesan, and baked until bubbly and golden. Another recipe from 1784 stated that the small tubes of macaroni must be boiled, then drained in a sifter before being moved to a frying pan. Heavy cream is then added to macaroni along with a knob of butter rolled in flour. It must be cooked for five minutes before being transferred to a dish and topped with toasted parmesan and pepper. The famous British Victorian cookbook, Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management, included two instances of macaroni as usually served with a cheese course, and one of them states, The macaroni, which should be tender but perfectly firm, no part being allowed to melt and the form entirely preserved, lest one be tempted to cook it for so long it actually disintegrated, is then topped with more cheese, pepper, and breadcrumbs before receiving a final dose of melted butter for good measure and being placed before a bright fire to brown the crumbs or grilled with a salamander broiler. Macaroni and cheese trickled down from the palaces to Europe's aristocratic homes where the dish was enjoyed well into the 18th century. Wealthy Americans who traveled across the pond fell in love with it at first bite and eager to mimic the continental lifestyle started serving mac and cheese on their own tables when they returned home. The poster child for this foreign food love affair was undoubtedly Thomas Jefferson, who first ate macaroni and cheese during a diplomatic stint in France in the late 1780s. In February 1789, William Short wrote to Thomas Jefferson that at Jefferson's request, he had procured a mold for making macaroni in Naples and had it forwarded to his mentor in Paris. The macaroni mold probably didn't reach Paris until after Jefferson had departed. His belongings were shipped to Philadelphia in 1790, and the machine was probably included with those items. We know that Jefferson did have this machine in the United States eventually as it's mentioned in a packing list with other household items shipped from Philadelphia to Monticello in 1793. While Jefferson had the pasta machine at Monticello in later years, he regularly ordered pasta from Europe. Jefferson's note on the production of pasta by machine in Italy reads as follows. The best macaroni in Italy is made with germ wheat of which germ and semolina flour is made in Naples. But in almost every shop, a different sort of flour is commonly used. For, provided the flour be of good quality and not ground extremely fine, it will always do very well. 
A paste is made with flour, water, and less yeast than is used for making bread. This paste is then put by little at a time, about five or six pounds each time, into a round iron box, the under part of which is perforated with holes, through which the paste, then pressed by the screw, comes out and forms the macaroni, which, when sufficiently long, are cut and spread to dry. The screw is turned by a lever inserted into the hole, of which there are four or six. It is evident that on turning the screw one way, the cylindrical part, which fits the iron box or mortar perfectly well, must press upon the paste and must force it out of the holes. We'll find out how macaroni and cheese goes from a meal for just kings to the meal for everyone after the break. I'm Chris. I'm Brian. I'm John. Together, we host the Yuletide TV Podcast, where we're on the quest to find the best Christmas TV episodes ever made. On our podcast, we'll recap the episode, share a little bit of our own holiday memories, and go down a few non-Christmas tangents. And at the end, we'll let you know if what we watched is a Christmas classic, a lump of coal, or something in between. Best of all, you can watch along with us because we only cover episodes that are readily available on major streaming services. We like our eggnog spikes, so get ready for some hot takes served with a healthy dose of Christmas cheer. Tune in for our Season 2 lineup reveal on November 2nd, and then look for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from November 23rd, which is legally Thanksgiving, until Christmas Day. Our podcast may not be for everyone, but no matter what, we're glad you're alive. This is Craig Kringle from the Weird Christmas Podcast. About three years ago, I went looking for very short, very strange stories that I could read on my show, but I couldn't find much. Or not much that was sufficiently weird, so I thought, why not ask people to write some? And thus was born the annual Weird Christmas Flash Fiction Contest. You can get all the details at weirdchristmas.com, but basically, I'm asking you to tell me a story that keeps Christmas weird. That can be funny weird, or creepy weird, or just plain what the nutcracker surreal. Keep it under 350 words, send it to weirdxmas at gmail.com by November 1st, and you could win some cash. Prizes range from $5 to $50, and I choose about a dozen to read on the show and publish on my website. Head over to weirdchristmas.com to see the winners and honorable mentions from the last couple years. Here's a quick sample to get that creative eggnog flowing. He glanced in terror at the other reindeer galloping beside him. Its eyes were as blue and as human as his were. He dropped Bill's head on his body and used his incinerator to fry Bill until he was dust. I guess I'm going to have a Merry Christmas after all. He felt himself shrinking till he couldn't have been more than a couple of inches high. A huge hand picked him up and placed him on the mantelpiece beside another motionless Santa. People don't like the baby Jesus to go missing from their nativity scene, they said. I shrugged. People were petty. I'm sorry there was no Santa, but I did provide an elf. Number four was a grand old patriarch, but we were ready for him. When he came crashing down the chimney, sermon in mid-flow, he landed right in the net we had tied to the mantelpiece. Traditions are great and all, but sometimes you just need Christmas to get a little bit weird. And I'm hoping you'll help me make it even weirder. So visit me at weirdchristmas.com, and I hope I'll get to read your stories soon. When macaroni and cheese was served at a plantation's big house, or mansion, 
it was often enslaved African Americans who did the cooking. In particular, Jefferson's enslaved chef, James Hemings, remains a ghost in America's kitchen, says Ashbel McKelvin, author of James Hemings, Slave and Chef for Thomas Jefferson. Hemings was overshadowed and still enslaved to the narrative that gives Thomas Jefferson's credit for introducing such food to the nation. James Hemings was the valet, chauffeur, and chef to Thomas Jefferson during the late 18th century in Monticello. In the spring of 1783, by Jefferson's command, Hemings trained under a French chef in Annapolis, before undergoing even more training with chefs at the Chateau de Chantilly, the five-star kitchen of 18th century France. After his training, he became the head chef at Jefferson's Palace in Paris, where he supervised a large French-speaking staff for Jefferson's extravagant dinners for royalty and the most discerning palates in Paris. Upon returning to slavery in Monticello, Hemings brought revolutionary changes to traditional colonial cooking, including continental European-style macaroni and cheese. Step-by-step -step processes of Hemings making mac and cheese for Jefferson's guests remain unaccounted for by historians. However, on a broader note, it's safe to say that although African Americans were the main ones responsible for the highly praised cuisine enjoyed in Monticello, they were invisible to those seated around the table. There aren't many historic references to the dish being prepared in slave cabins, however, probably because the ingredients were rare and expensive. In some documented cases, plantation slave owners would distribute cheddar wedges on Christmas Day and the 4th of July, but that was also rare. However, enslaved chefs and servants lived and worked in rooms adjoining Monticello, as they were still, and at the end of the day, seen as inferior. Even during meals, Jefferson insisted on using service dumbwaiters, which limited the face-to-face -face interactions between his elite dinner guests, chefs, and servants. As such, diners would become blind to the individuals who raised, harvested, prepared, and served the elegant meals they enjoyed. Interesting enough, this could be a driving factor in why so many people think Jefferson is solely responsible for the invention of the mac and cheese dish, as they both ancient diners and current consumers were made blind to his enslaved chefs who prepared the meal. He was so smitten by the delicacy that he smuggled a macaroni maker back to the United States so he could prepare it for dinner parties. As president, Jefferson served macaroni and cheese in the White House on February 6, 1802. One of the guests that night, U.S. Representative the Reverend Manasseh Cutler of Massachusetts, was less than impressed, writing about the strong and not very agreeable taste of the new food in his diary. A shift starts to happen in the 1800s, where we start to see people trying to grow germ wheat in other parts of the world, and they're trying to find a substitute for Parmesan cheese. Adrian Miller, author of Soul Food, The Surprising Story of American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time, explains, What puts mac and cheese on the road of what we understand it as today is that in the late 1700s and early 1800s, British dairy farmers started making cheddar cheese and the older cheddars were very similar to Parmesan. They were very hard and flaky, so that became the substitute for the Parmesan. America, in fact, quickly started producing loads and loads of cheddar cheese around this time too. 
On this side of the Atlantic, American dairy farmers became very good at making another version of cheddar, Miller says. By the 1850s, the United States is the next top exporter of cheddar after England. Right around the same time, farmers here really get good at growing Durham wheat. So the price of mac and cheese just plummets, Miller continues. It keeps dropping, so by the time you get to the 1900s, mac and cheese is now considered a dish for the masses. There are a few schools of thought among mac and cheese lovers. For instance, those who think of it as a functional quick and easy snack, think the box macaroni and cheese with the powdered cheese packet, and those who couldn't imagine an event or celebration without a serving of mac baked until golden. Unlike Cutler, many wealthy Southerners embraced macaroni and cheese, frequently including it on menus to mark special occasions. The recipe, variously titled macaroni, macaroni pie, or macaroni pudding, shows up in many pre-Civil War Southern cookbooks. From privately printed family volumes to higher profile tomes, such as The Virginia Housewife of 1824, The Kentucky Housewife of 1839, and The Carolina Housewife of 1847. After emancipation, macaroni and cheese took on a new life and multiple identities within the black community, says Adrian Miller. It became a celebratory dish, a convenient comfort food, and a meal stretcher for impoverished families. In the latter scenario, poor households relied on the government, anti-hunger programs in the school lunch program, and relief organizations for food. They often received macaroni and processed cheese, the makings of a quick meal. Once African-American families prospered, however, home cooks served up the kind of macaroni and cheese seen on the other middle-class family tables. Macaroni made from scratch with a roux, or supermarket convenience products such as boxes, microwave tubs, or frozen meals. However, the most glorious version was reserved for big family gatherings like Thanksgiving or Christmas, when company came over. Prepared more like a casserole, the dish contained eggs, extra cheese, and milk, maybe even some meat and vegetables, all with a breadcrumb topping. Soul Food restaurant patrons have come to expect this fancy version though they'd be just as happy with a simpler yet still soul-nourishing recipe. First, let's start by acknowledging that no culture is monolithic and that even among people who share the same cultural heritage, there can be great diversity. However, certain things can be and often are a very common experience. For many black Americans, homemade macaroni and cheese is a holiday staple. And it's not just on the table for Thanksgiving, but also for Christmas, family gatherings, barbecues, and Sunday dinners when the weather is cold. It is not just a side dish. It is the dish. There had been debates in black families for generations about who has the best recipe and whether or not it's sacrilege to buy and use shredded cheese or whether it's better to buy a big block of cheese and grate it yourself. This is a dish so sacred that not just anyone is allowed to make it. In fact, one of the first questions someone at a black family function is likely to ask before diving into the mac and cheese is, who made it? In black culture, for the most part, macaroni and cheese is the pinnacle, the highest culinary accolade, says Kelly Marcias of Daily Cost. Who makes it, how it's made, and who's allowed to bring it to a gathering involves negotiation, tradition, and tacit understanding. 
It's made from scratch and usually involves multiple kinds of cheese. Secret touches like eggs and evaporated milk may be involved and debates over toppings. It's baked and it's a side dish, but it's a side dish of honor present at every important occasion. Just rip the top off a blue box? It'd be like ripping through your grandmother's heart. In present-day black culture, holiday food is inextricable from soul food, says Miller, meaning that mac and cheese is an all-year-round unifying meal for African-American communities. The makings of mac and cheese in black culture, prepared more like a casserole than anything, have become the pinnacle of the family get-together. This is the conundrum and beauty of mac and cheese. It is one person's survival food, another person's staple main course, and yet another person's food of culture and celebration. Divided as America is among class and race lines, when you bring up mac and cheese, you have to be careful or you may be talking about a different mac and cheese altogether. The one thing that does seem to unify people who eat macaroni and cheese is that everyone views it as comfort food. Whichever form of mac and cheese people grew up with, it provides them with something visceral they want to recreate as adults. This is what unites us across the dinner table and across the nation at Christmas. Christmas is comfort, and comfort for some is a steaming, gooey helping of macaroni and cheese. Seasons Eatings has created some great items for your holiday gift giving. We have shirts, mugs, tote bags, and more. Just click on the merchandise tab at seasonseatingspodcast.com for your next great gift. And I strongly urge you to pick up Adrian Miller's book, Soul Food. This James Beard Foundation Book Award winner is a collection of expertly researched essays on some of the most iconic dishes from black culture. And there are bonus recipes for all the great dishes he explores. I'll provide a link for the book in the show notes. Finally, thank you for listening to the Serving of Seasons Eatings. Seasons Eatings is available on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please, if you can leave a review about the show, we can spread the Christmas cheer. And if you let me know you've left a review, I'll send you a Seasons Eatings sticker as a personal thank you. Also, I would love to hear from you. Please send me an email at seasonseatingspodcast at gmail.com to let me know how you like the show. And I know we all get busy, so even sharing the podcast with someone you love who loves Christmas would be a big help. And finally, if you're feeling extra generous this season, you can buy me an eggnog. Just head on over to seasonseatingspodcast.com and click on the little cup in the corner. Thank you for listening and tune in again for another serving of Seasons Eatings. All music used on Seasons Eatings is royalty free and used under the Creative Commons license.